morning, John. It's good, good morning, to see you. Great to see you again. Uh, I'm in London right now, and it's it's actually not the morning in London, but I see uh, you're in Colorado, uh, and it's a beautiful day there. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. I'm in the middle of a group of mountains that are nearly 5,000 meters high, and uh, one of the larger uh, valleys on the planet out in front of me, a very large uh, 140 by 90 mile valley that extends out to the horizons. Gorgeous spot. Great. Uh, I think today's conversation, we are trying to have an experiment of giving the listeners and the viewers an overview of your work of way of nature and the different practices that you have developed in your journey. So perhaps if you can give us an introduction, and I know you have very extensive experience in different traditions and ecological work and environmental movement, how would you sort of describe uh, your journey uh, in the last well, it's been a it's been a long journey. So I I know you are uh, an elder, and it would be great to understand what has your journey been in the last few decades. Well, I guess in a in a nutshell, I spent uh, much of the first part of my working life uh, helping to birth the environmental movement, starting back in the late fifties, and then uh, being very active in actually branding the term environment to uh, bringing a whole system, deeply connective approach to what we used to call conservation of natural resources. And, uh, but I realized that, that was still based on a taker mentality. And I wanted to work to bring a broader whole system perspective where people and nature were one or connected deeply instead of just a taker type of mentality. So I worked to help, uh, I came up with the word environment as a good word that could describe a whole system, reality of nature and humans together. And uh, the word caught on through a lot of work that we did to, to bread it properly. And uh, suddenly the environmental movement uh, unfolded and many, many people of course were involved in helping build that out. But that was a major focus point for my early work in my life. Later, I began to shift my focus towards, uh, I began doing vision quests, Native American style, uh, back when I was young, very young. I think my first was around seven years old. And that laid a foundation really for seeing how powerful such a, a straightforward uh, meditative technique can be to open up a profound connection with the rest of life and all nature. And I began to recognize, especially as, as politicians and lawyers and, and uh, people that had that kind of background began to take over the environmental movement, I began to see that there was a need to bring back that deep process of nature connectivity to provide a solid cultural foundation for what needed to happen to the broader Western set of cultures. And so I've been working since uh, the uh, really the early 70s Taking that early experience of the vision and the nature, nature retreats and uh, creating a process and makes it effective for this modern time that we're in. 
And then the other thing that I did at the same time, I'd <clears throat> been very lucky to study with some really profound teachers from uh, the Taoist tradition, the Buddhist tradition, the Hindu tantric tradition, and uh, among others, and then among some of the Native American traditions. And through that, those experiences, I began to see that there were certain common principles of spiritual cultivation that were in common. And I didn't find much out there that provided a common ground approach to spiritual cultivation. So I began to come up with a series of core principles and processes that established a very simple common ground that anyone can benefit from, anyone can make them make make it part of their life, and also uh, can either give them a kind of a fresh approach to spiritual cultivation based on connection to nature. It also provides an opportunity to, if you're part of a, an established tradition or religion, you can begin to see other traditions and other religions from a perspective of you're on a similar pathway to many other cultures. So it provides a pathway of cultural understanding and tolerance and respect between cultures. So I began to develop these principles that provided nature connection process as a spiritual practice, and then uh, a deeply honoring process that helped people respect each other's culture and see that we really have much more in common than we have differences between each other. We don't really need to fight about who's got the best culture or the best religion. We, we can find the common ground. Yeah, and and this started, this journey started in 1960s, you said? Yeah, I was born in 1938, and I did my first, uh, what we call today, I guess, a contemporary vision quest, which means you go out into nature alone for a period of time. In my case, it was about four, four days and nights. <clears throat> And in that time, of course, human culture falls away and the culture of all life in nature arises. So you enter a state of great freedom and a very deep experience of connection to the rest of life because the, the culture of all life begins to replace the human culture. So I began doing that at least an annual basis and sometimes two or three times a year, starting in 1945. And then I continued that on through my university days but when I got to school, I began to go into the science of ecology because I felt that this was the science that most closely uh, focused on the reality of the interwovenness, the interconnectedness of all life in all living systems. And so, uh, and then out of those two things, I began to work on helping uh, build it, build out the environmental movement with a number of other friends and associates. Wow, that's... Uh... That's such a long time ago, and it's it's amazing that we had the roots of the ecological movement starting all the way in sixties when the challenges were evident, and we are here today in twenty twenty, and we can see some of the impact in terms of the the fires that are going on in Australian forests in the Amazon. And it's definitely a time when we are also seeing the people going back towards a more populist stance of looking inward to their culture and getting polarized. 
What would be interesting is first to understand at such an early age, what called you to go into nature? Was that a, a tradition in the family? Was that a calling? Why oh, did uh, you do it? Uh, my family had no tradition of going out alone like that, much less doing a vision quest. But my, especially my mother's side of the family was deeply passionate and loved nature with, from a very, very deep place. And I think I, I received that from my, especially from my mother's side of the family. My dad's side of the family was largely Irish. And uh, we were, uh, I think, influenced from some of the Celtic uh, cultures, which have also a very strong nature connection. My dad loved nature too. He was quite an adventurer and got involved with the early uh, experiments and things like uh, scuba diving. And we, were avid sailors and skiers and and uh, spent a lot of time out in nature in a kind of adventurous way. And that led to me later on forming a number of expeditions in different parts of the world where there are places that you've not yet had a history of Western exploration. So I, I spent a lot of time doing these expeditions and going into places that were unknown to the outside world. And then uh, through that, I, I tapped into an experience of what it feels like to enter into a place where virtually very few humans other than the indigenous peoples have ever been. And the kind of pristine quality of those places, the clarity, the spaciousness, and the primordial quality of life in those places really impressed me and kind of built on top of the Vision Quest experience that I had starting as a young kid. Um, I should mention too that I began asking probably around four, maybe five, my parents to let me go and my grandparents to let me go out and do a, a time of solitude, deep solitude in nature for three or four or five nights and days. <clears throat> when I first asked to do this, say around four or five, the response I got was, well, maybe in a couple of years, if you can be patient wait for a little bit, uh, then we'll, we'll be glad to set that up for you. And so the next year I asked again, I said, well, you're getting close, but you maybe wait another year. And then so finally at the age seven, they said, okay, you think you're, you're ready. It's safe for you to go out in a sacred way. And so I did my first, uh, essentially my first vision quest at age seven in uh, the mountains of, uh, the White Mountains of New Hampshire some extraordinary wilderness up there still and i love going back there even today to re-immerse myself in that place because it's so pristine has maintained a lot of that primordial quality of nature that uh, so many places have lost and why is that really important to you and why was this a defining experience for you I think it was a defining experience in, in large part because um, I'd been surrounded, of course, like all of us are, by family, friends, school, schoolmates, teachers. And I was immersed in a, in a as most of us humans are, in a deep uh, process of being culturized, acculturated. And so my entire experience of life was one that was being defined by family, friends, loved ones, teachers, 
uh, friends around my age, and then of course, uh, those that I met in school. So it was very human-centric. And I, I knew deep down in my heart that it was very important for me to get the other side of the picture, which was the, the language of nature, the language of nature and spirit, and to get it directly without any human intervention, to go direct <clears throat> to the source of nature and the source of all being in a very direct and simple way. And it seemed like going out in solitude and letting human culture fall away for a few days and then being open and receptive to what nature and spirit would teach me seemed to be the way to go. So I did that. And then as I mentioned, I started at age seven with a short one of only about four nights and four days. And then from there I built up into periods which eventually led me to do a month long uh, period of deep solitude in the Olympic mountains in the state of Washington when I was 15. So, uh, but I, during that period of time from seven to 15, I did many, many, many uh, solid, solitary retreats in nature in many different areas in the Adirondacks and the White Mountains, in the Pine Barrens of South Jersey and some of the swampy country. I love the swamps. So I would go to places like the Great Swamp in New Jersey, the Dismal Swamp in uh, near Norfolk, uh, the, the Okefenokee Swamp in Georgia, and eventually the Everglades in South Florida. And Tegueo would do the same thing, go deep into the womb of life, become part of the, the body of life, and then be open to receive the teachings from those deep immersions. And I've continued that all my life. I'm still doing that today. Okay, that's very helpful context, John. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. Uh, so I think you brought up a lot of interesting points there. And I think first thing people might be curious about is the word vision quest. And mm. you mentioned the process of dropping away of culture. So can you perhaps give people an overview of what you mean by this? What is a vision quest? And what is this concept of going into nature by in your solitude and watching the cultural accumulation drop away okay um the term vision quest comes from native american culture and different native american cultures have different uh formal ways of doing a vision quest which are powerful and deep and profound uh, <clears throat> my mom's side of the family had very strong uh, connection to uh, Native American uh, beliefs and understandings. I may well have had some connections in the family line, We're still finding that out. But for whatever reason, uh, I felt very supported when I mentioned this, that I would like to go out into nature in a sacred way. And uh, so it came from the inside out. It didn't come as something that they might wanted me or expected me or asked me to do. But the, the term vision quest is part of most indigen, indigenous cultures. You find if you look around the planet that most indigenous peoples have the vision quest or the process of going in deeply into solitude in a deeply uh, respectful way. You find this in virtually every culture and the respect is there for nature and the spirits of nature and the great spirit that holds all of nature. And so the 
The quest is really a quest to find out fundamental truths of who are you, why are you here, and what is this life all about? What's it for? And you don't get the answers to those questions from your parents and your family and your community. You get them directly from nature and spirit. And we follow that pattern today in, <clears throat> in our way of nature community that we have now. Those are the three basic questions that people begin with and, and begin to receive answers as they go into this process of solitude. Um, <clears throat> as I grew older, I continued with that process of deep immersion in the quest. <clears throat> and I should mention here that uh, in one of the things that uh, many indigenous peoples do too, is they uh, ask for a vision that helps to answer those three questions. They ask for a, defi ask for a defining division that can help them get a deeper understanding of what they're here for, what this life is for. So in that sense, it becomes a rite of passage. And for that reason, it's often done by teenagers who are looking for the right path for themselves in life. And very often to honor that when they come back out of their vision quest, they may receive a new name that, that uh, reflects that deep uh, role, that, they, that deep uh, reason for their being in this life. When they come back out and they're treated then as an, as an, as an adult, they're no longer a child. When they return, they've been through that passage, that right passage, and at that point, they can be received back into the culture as a full-fledged adult. So it's a very powerful rite of passage process for many, many cultures around the planet, not just Native American. And then later on, I went a little deeper. I began to study different cultures and practice with several of them in the ways I mentioned, Buddhism, Taoism, Hindu, uh, non-dual, Advaita Vedanta, and Tantra. And, um, and then I was lucky enough to actually live with a number of indigenous cultures in Latin America and went very deep with the guidance and the help of those elders <clears throat> who became some of my first teachers, especially in the Mayan culture. And uh, through all of that process, I began to see that many of these cultures uh, did that period of solitude in order to have an authentic connection with what I now call uh, their true nature, to have an authentic connection with the deepest level of their being. And they also established a powerful connection to the rest of life, which you could sum up as outer nature. And then you began to get some understanding of how both outer nature and the inner nature, the deep true nature of yourself, the source aspect, also is being constantly mediated by this sense of individuated self and the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts that we have as an individual. All those I've been summing up lately as, as our inner nature. So the vision quest or the deep immersion in solitude, which we now embrace through our nature, our sacred passages and nature quests, really open up the doors to connecting to outer nature, inner nature, and true nature. And so the connection to these three natures, I discovered many of these great lineages utilize solitude and being in a very sacred place and going there with authentic teachings. And they would go into these sacred places into solitude to get direct guidance and direct uh, 
uh, immersion in the truth of, you might say, the, the all of life is their teacher and the depth of connection to spirit that came in through that solitude as well. That interference from human culture. Very, very powerful process and pretty universal. So the way of nature that we have now has really tried to distill those universal processes and teachings and bring them into modern times, in part because most of the spiritual traditions that we have are very weak on nature connectivity. And we happen to live in a time where our survival depends upon deep connection to nature. All of the wonderful work of Greta Thunberg, for example, in pointing to the basic science that's being ignored by most politicians and cultures. That's great work that she's pointing back to this basic science. But the companion to that, I would say, is that we need to go back to having a direct connection and cultivating that connection with the rest of life so we can receive these insights, we can fall in love with life again and with all species, and we can learn from that how to come back into harmony. We have the passion, the experience, and the uh, creativity to re-engage with, uh, with what's going on on the planet right now. And we can bring that to the table and come up with creative solutions of how we come back into balance and harmony with all life and with all outer nature. So I would say the spiritual cultivation process in nature is actually critical to our survival at this point in time, not just the science, but we have to open the heart, establish those deep connections, so we see all of life as our family and experience it that way. And we treat it like family. Thanks for sharing that, John. I think uh, you touched upon so many interesting threads there and uh, I will try to pull on a few of them sure. and please do add on any other ones. So the first thing is how this approach that you are speaking of is so radically different from the modern society we live in in the 21st century. You spoke about understanding your purpose by looking inside, going into solitude, connecting with your own source and with the source in nature. And from what we see in the last 50 years of consumeristic capitalism and the generic culture, it seems that we are told to continuously pursue happiness by consuming things. And there are people who have the solutions to what we should be doing, what the purpose of our life is. And that could be a mythology like the American dream, the rags to riches story. It could be a religious or a cultural norm of how one should aspire to a particular ideal. And often these have embedded power structures and economic incentives in them. And what you're suggesting is, is actually radically different because what you're saying is you go by yourself into nature, you spend time by yourself with deep communion in nature with authentic teachings and practices and we will touch upon them later on. 
And what you're saying is the answers will emerge from your being to the three big questions. And, and it seems so different to how we are conditioned. And it would be great to hear your thoughts on, on how and why. I mean, it is very clear to me that this is so important because the path of consumerism and the path of seeking someone else to give you the solution and be that a guru or be that a self-help book, uh, be that, uh, you know, any particular ideal just does not work because we all have our own individual longing for a purpose. Can you please comment on that? Sure. Just a quick comment on the word guru. Um, <clears throat> it's in the West, of course, that's been kind of uh, trashed as a word, but the, the real job of any authentic guru can be easily uh, shared. Could you please please spell the word guru for me? G-U-R-U. -U. That's it. So you discover, <laughs> you, discover, you discover your true self. Oh, that's you, a good one. <laughs> you discover who you really are. That's the job of any guru is to help give you some guidelines, some simple processes, and to point you in the right direction into your true nature. That's the basic job of any authentic guru. It's not to make them a, a part of a cult or get them uh, addicted to whatever you have to say or do. It's to really point you back into the fundamental truth of your of being. And so I just want to make that comment because I think it's, it's often misunderstood in the West. Um, <clears throat> but I, I guess building on what you were just sharing about, I've more recently been amazed that we've, we've got this immense explosion of concern about the health of the planet. We have the, uh, the concern about the loss of species and the extinction rebellion blossoming all over the planet, which is fantastic, that kind of awareness. And we have the work of people like Greta, uh, which is brought out at this amazing uh, realization that unless we take some action to begin to, to act as a responsible member of the biosphere and all the ecosystems that we're part of, we're finished. And we may bring much of the life of the planet down with us, which would really be tragic. <clears throat> so what I began to realize as this was taking place uh, is that the, the, the keys of this process of a way of nature, a natural way of opening up truth, deep truth of what our connections are to our nature, uh, the truth of these amazing systems of our inner nature and the truth of our source nature, the opening of those three natures authentically in ourselves may provide the keys that allows us to become really deeply committed and dedicated to a kind of cultural transformation which can bring or human cultures back into harmony and balance for the rest of life. I don't see how we can do that unless the heart opens, we begin to embrace all of life as our family, we begin to learn from all life, and we begin to then, from the creativity that arises from that, we begin to respond with the immense number of possible creative responses that uh, you tap into as you begin to approach source or your true nature, an immense field of creativity is, is unleashed. You kind of receive a natural empowerment from Mother Earth in a way. 
when you go into solitude in nature. And the creativity that pours through you is extraordinary. And I have great faith that that creativity, which you can see flowing in many young people today, that creativity will provide many of the solutions to coming back into balance. But it needs to have its companion. That kind of wisdom needs to have its, as its companion a heart that's completely connected to the rest of life. The most powerful and profound way to do that is to go out alone with some simple guidelines into nature for short periods of time and maybe longer once you're ready for that. And we at the Way of Nature were specialists in that. That's what we have built over the past 50 years as a system, a way of doing that that's intercultural. It's not part of any particular religion. It's very open. It's very free. It's very available. You can step into it and make it your own in the way that makes sense to you and works for you. And uh, so I look on this as a time when this is the companion key to coming back into balance. That's the companion to what Greta has talked about. What about the science, the basic science of climate change? And she's right about that. We need that basic science. We need to live by that. But we also need to open the heart and, and the experience of being part of the family of life and seeing all of life as part of our family and then behaving with a care and responsible res response to being part of our life that would come from any parent wanting to care for the, their children. And that's what, and the only way I know to do that is through these deep periods of extensive solitude in nature. Uh, We've designed ways of doing that on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, and you can even go longer if you would like. But we can actually make a lot of progress simply by beginning to take some of the principles and practices of nature connectivity, working with those, and then when we're ready to go out into a wild place for a short period of time, maybe just for a few hours, then we can begin to explore applying what we've learned to those short immersions. Then once we've become, we've begun to transform through that, then we can go out for maybe our first overnight experience and begin to have a deeper immersion of connection. And uh, then when you've done some of that, then you could probably can graduate to the point where you might even go out for a week of solitude in nature, maybe with the guidance of somebody uh, in, your, in your community or in your neighborhood or your area that has some experience with this. I've been training people to do this all over the planet for the past, especially the past 15 years. So it could become a progressive path of opening up the connections to those three natures, outer, inner, and true. That's, uh, that's, that's so rich. Yeah, I, can, I can ask <laughs> 50 different questions uh, on that. I think one thing I wanna to touch upon is the importance of heart and I think we have had the science for a really long time. We all know that the, the glaciers are melting. We had the hottest week in, in, the, in the polar region this week. We have had fires. Now it's not even avoidable. It's just, it's just staring right in our face. You don't have to read any scientific papers to see what's happening. And yet we don't see a lot of response. Uh, and I definitely connect with your point that there is a disconnect between the head that looks at these numbers and these temperature figures and the heart, which doesn't realize what's actually happening and that millions of animals and plants are burning away and 
we're having a, a real crisis uh, in, in, the, in the biosphere. And at the same time, along with the importance of heart, it would be great if you can touch upon the principles that you mentioned of clarity that arises when you go into nature and the capacity that you build. Because we have seen instances where people either have recognized the crisis and they understand the science behind it and their heart is open, but then they either don't have the clarity or the capacity to act on it effectively and they fall into despair. And on the other side, we have situations where when you see the reality, it is so difficult and scary that people disconnect their heart and just switch off from it and just sort of go back into their illusion that this is just another fad and it will just pass away. So can you please comment on those elements of building the heart capacity, building the clarity for a creative response? Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right about <clears throat> the fact that it's a building process. And um, <clears throat> I'd say one of the key steps in opening to that connection to a real authentic heart connection uh, from your heart to the rest of life means that, and to your loved ones, and even to those that you dislike, then ultimately, if you get really good at this, um, one of the keys is to honor the shadows that fill so much of our psyches. Uh, right now, we're in the way of nature engaged in the first retreat, three-year retreat that I've ever offered, where we we look into the, over three-year period, the power by which the shadow aspect of our, our natures, the shadows, the blockages, the obscurations. How would the, you define the shadows in case people are not familiar okay, uh, with that term? Uh, anger and fear are the shadow aspect of uh, joy and and happiness and a clear and open spacious mind, for example. If that normally open, luminous, clear uh, state of being, which is our birthright, by the way, the birthright of our true nature, given to us from birth. If that becomes obscured by anger and fear or greed or jealousy or any one of a number of shadows, then of course, it's very difficult for us to access a truly open heart that then allows us to experience deep connection at heart level. So one of the first jobs we have is to learn how to honor the shadows, the fact they do exist, and then how do we help them to transform? How do we liberate or free up those shadows so they, they, come, uh, they can become open, free energy and kind of natural light in themselves? So in this three-year retreat, we're working at taking each one of the uh, shadow aspects or being like anger or fear or a particular anger or fear and then we look at it from the standpoint of how is that embedded in my body how in the Taoist tradition we say that many of the negative emotions and shadow aspects and blockages are lodged especially in our organs for example anger tends to be lodged in the liver uh, type a behavior anxiety tends to be held in the heart uh, worry tends to be held in the spleen pancreas area in the stomach. Uh, 
sadness and grief tend to be held in the lungs. And then fear is, tends to be held or, or, or stuffed into the kidneys. So literally there are bodily locations where many of these, these blockages and shadow aspects are located. And when you learn through the intercultural approach, the many different approaches to beginning to transform at the bodily level, those emotional blockages and shadows, it frees the energy up, it frees the mind up, it frees the experience of life up. Then if you go even deeper and you begin to address those same issues, maybe the same emotion of anger or fear, and you address it at the level of your energy body, which in modern American culture or European culture, this may not have been attended to that much until more recently, but we know from the experience in, in many of the Greek cultures from India and China, for example, that uh, there's a very profound energy body that is part of our makeup. And many of the blockages and shadows are held in the energy body itself. So we, there are another set of techniques of how to transform. Acupuncture, for example, is a good example of how you begin to liberate blockages in the energy body and free them up. Same thing would be true for the chakra system uh, of alignment of the, of the, in the core of the body. So we learn how to transform these blockages and shadow aspects at the level of the, of the energy body. And then we might take the same emotional set and begin to work at it, work on them at the level of the emotional body. How are they held in the, in the, uh, the reality of the emotional set of feelings that we have as part of our makeup? How can we address them directly uh, through the emotional body and help them to become free? And become free emotions and open, uh, spacious being again. Then we finally work at the level of the mental body. What are the belief systems? What are the mental traces with which we hold a particular emotional pattern that is at least a blockages? I am angry at this character because then you have a whole set of ideas and beliefs that help you hold and that solidify that anger. So you learn how to liberate those mental sets of patterns. And then you go finally into working with the ancestral traces of what uh, you may have inherited through your family and your family lineage, the patterns that maybe have come from being mistreated. In my case, uh, my Irish ancestors were subjected to, uh, they came over to the Americas because they were starving to, to death. There are certain elements in British society that were starving in them of food and preventing them from receiving food. So when my ancestors migrated to the States, they did so in part because all of their families were, were starving, they were dying. So that kind of genocide leaves traces in the ancestral patterns of our being. And we have to learn how to go back into those ancestral patterns and free them up. And then finally, we look into the karmic traces, the previous existences that we've had, and the traces of blockage and shadow that exist there. We learn how to liberate even at the level of the karmic traces. Now, when you put all those together, bodily, energetic, emotional, mental, ancestral, and karmic patterns of shadow and blockage, and you learn how to liberate them, you've got a very powerful freeing up of the whole being. So the heart can open and make an authentic connection to the rest of life. If you're still blocked, it's very hard to do that. And 
and there are so many layers that you mentioned and is it not possible to skip a few layers and just go you know i'm asking you a question from a 2020 millennial mindset can i just go to the to the mind and just switch it off is that possible or is the process to recommend by going into one body and then the other um well, welcome to our three-year retreat, which goes into immense detail about the process of, of, of liberation. <clears throat> but I would, I would say initially that you can take a starting point at any one of those levels, and they naturally radiate out into and affect all the other levels. They're interconnected. We have uh, this thing called the 12 Principles of Natural Liberation in the Way of Nature, and there are a set of 12 core principles that if you follow them, they, they, find, they give you the common ground of all the great enlightening lineages. And if you follow them, they progressively lead you through the process of, of liberation, basically. The first of those 12 principles is the principle that says all forms, be they mental, experiential, sensorial, uh, or outwardly physical, all forms are completely interconnected, interwoven, interwoven as we know now from quantum theory. And at the same time, each of those form aspects is in a state of constant change and transformation. There is no such a thing as a fixed permanent form, including the form of what we identify as ourselves. What we see ourselves as an, as an ego is actually a, a continually changing phenomenon, believe it or not. <clears throat> so, once you begin to see that all these different aspects, these form aspects that make up our being, are completely interwoven and tied together in a vast ecology of being, then you begin to see that if you begin to work on any one of these, these levels that I mentioned before, from bodily on through to karmic trace, uh, that can be a doorway into opening up the interconnectivity of blockages throughout your being. So I guess the answer is yes, you can start with one aspect like the mind, but then you have to be thorough in following the threads out through the rest of your being. And that's what we do in the way of nature in a comprehensive way to provide those tools. And we're working with how to provide those same tools in a very simple way, a very simple process that makes it very widely available to almost anyone. This yeah. is a new this is a new focal point for the way of nature, I should say. I, I don't know of any uh, process that uh, addresses blockages and shadow aspects quite so comprehensively that I've, I've come across. I think the fact that we're dealing with blockages as a whole system is part of the key to why I think it's working well. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I wanted to bring that question in because these days we have this sort of fast food culture that's going on where we want to have instant solutions to everything and we often find ourselves targeted by advertising which says here you go spend fifty dollars and get presents and enlightenment and get all the problems sorted uh, but that's actually not the case and and there's a lot of depth to the teachings and there's a lot of inner work that is involved which takes place like you mentioned over a period of years uh, where you work through the different patterns and you uh, unfold the different obstructions to the source expression, like you said. 
this is let's say let's say someone is hearing this and they're super excited by this and they are someone who is interested in actually the deep quality work uh, not just a quick term fix you mentioned principles you mentioned practices i think it, it would be really good to understand where people can start what would be the the principles that you would recommend and then we can probably discuss some of the practices which people can just start off with maybe someone doesn't have the time or the ability to do a 10-day time in nature what could it be that they should do so maybe let's give people an overview of the principles first sure well I, <clears throat> the 12 principles start with the one i mentioned before the first principle says that everything all form aspects arise from source this magical, mysterious source that we might call God, we might call a great spirit, we might call the great mystery. Uh, physicists might call it uh, the infinite quantum field. There are many possible names. But uh, we, the basic principle says, however you use that term source, uh, all the form aspects arise from this formless, infinite, uh, field of primordial pristine consciousness or awareness they manifest briefly in their form aspect for a very brief moment and then they almost instantly begin to be subject to some sort of change or transformation whether you can perceive it or not i emphasize that because many of these changes we can't perceive with our normal senses until they're highly refined so um, then it also says that amazingly all of these infinite form aspects that are arising manifesting and dissolving moment by moment as they go through their changes uh, are completely interconnected in the field a vast interconnected field of you might say the ecology of all form a vast ecosystem form and we know this is true now, of course, from quantum physics has authenticated the truth of that. Uh, so, <clears throat> uh, and I, I think it's interesting that all of this boils, when you boil it down, is happening in the present, in, not in the future or the past, those are just ideas, but in the moment. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day and I said, you know, I think I'm gonna coin a new word. Each moment is actually an omen, O-M-E-N-T, omen. Using the word om or the, the mantric syllable om, which is a, is a syllable that helps us perceive the interconnectedness of all form. So all these individualized omens actually are displays of this unified field that arises in the present of time. Now, as a simple practice, you can take this first principle, you can go out into nature in a local park, ideally get away from folks for a little while, where you don't hear people, see people, or touch people, your, 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 your five senses are freed up of sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, balance, and movement, and then even the mind and the emotional body is kind of freed up from all the interactivity with other humans. And just go into nature in that kind of quiet place where you feel safe 
and where you can let go for for a moment and just uh, be in that environment in that beautiful spot in nature in fact i recommend people find those spots on your own do a little research find them let them speak to you let them call to you and bring you in and then that can become kind of a little cathedral for you that's your personal uh, church of nature your personal synagogue of nature your per personal temple of nature and you go there on a regular basis and by going there regularly you begin to create and build a field of familiarity nature begins to know you you begin to know nature and there's a kind of acceptance that opens up in the field of that and so when you go into that special place that you found just sit for a bit and let yourself rest back into a state of just being in very clear open awareness without any kind of contrived behavior or ideas so it would be great if you deepen into that because i don't think we know how to do that almost always we are either using our phones or we are thinking or we are thinking about what we did yesterday or tomorrow so what do you mean by just go your 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 iphone in the car in the glove box leave your computer back at home all digital stuff i would recommend letting go of for a while we are so addicted to it i mean we don't need to walk down the street with our cell phone constantly like this ignoring this amazing display of the beauty of nature you know, i have a little term i share with my students why settle for virtual reality and that basically means why do you why i mean there's nothing wrong with spending some time with virtual reality but why settle for that as being the only thing what about the real thing That's and true. actually the virtual arises from the real thing the virtual is part of the display of the real thing and uh but that's a whole other discussion we can maybe have it at another time so the, so uh, we go into the nature nature that's Quiet and way. just sit there like you said or do we do something you can go there and sit or you can stand i teach ways of standing meditation too if it's for some reason too difficult to sit in that place maybe it's swampy or wet or whatever there are ways to do standing meditation maybe i can share in the future and um but either standing or sitting be still be quiet be open be silent let the busyness of the mind the business of the emotions settle and just rest in a very natural clear open state not complicated extremely simple and as you're in that open state of clear awareness just notice how all the forms of nature surrounding you are in a state of continuous change we have some aspen forests here just outside the door i often like to walk over there and watch we call it here locally the quaking aspen it's the name of the tree and the little leaves of that tree are constantly in a state of shimmering and vibrating it's um there's a kind of a shimmering quality to the aspen and it's interesting homeopathically aspen is said to be a tree this quaking aspen is said to be the antidote to fear interestingly enough so um anyway in a quaking aspen grove you can sit there and you see the entire forest is alive and vibrating and changing and flowing through the vibration of these 
beautiful trembling leaves which tremble all year long and there's a beautiful sound to them too. So you can perceive this continuous changing aspect of form displaying through the sound of the leaves in the vision of these beautiful shaking of the leaves in the way the light is constantly quivering and displaying itself differently as time goes on and just enjoy the dance of this constantly changing form aspect. If you're lucky enough to have a stream nearby, then you can watch the flow of the water also in a state of continuous transformation. Every little whirlpool, every little current is unique. It's complete in itself in that moment or that moment, but then it changes immediately to some new form. And just enjoy the flow of the change. And you begin to get a deep understanding within yourself that everything is changing. If you spend a little time, maybe later on, and paying attention to your thoughts and your emotions, you'll notice they too are constantly changing. If you're sitting there with one thought, you don't just stay with that thought. Other thoughts are constantly coming in and replacing it. If you're sitting there with a particular emotion, that emotion is not just there, it's the only thing that's going on in your life. There are other refined emotions that are coming through all the time as the display of life continues. So pay attention to those. Appreciate this dance of form that is actually part of the beauty of life. It's part of the creative display of life. Now, in the Buddhist tradition and in, some, and in the Hindu tradition, they point out that if you become attached to these outward forms and try to grasp onto them and fixate them, that becomes a source. And they're, of course, inevitably going to change then of course you suffer because that form has changed. The loved one has changed. They're no longer young. They're now maybe getting older, not, not as beautiful as they once were. Um, the, uh, or maybe the, the, uh, the form that you, you're attached to, uh, fire comes through because of climate change. Your entire little town is burned down. It's just happened in Australia and California. Then you find yourself with your home burned up complete change and transformation. And if you're deeply attached to that form of that home, of course, you're gonna suffer very, very deeply if you have begun to cultivate the fact that everything changes in your life from birth to death. There's not one moment that, some, that the form aspects of your life are not changing. If you really incorporate the truth of this continuous flow of change of all the forms that you dance with in life, and you accept that, then you begin to touch into freedom. And if you can follow the truth of those forms as arising from pure source, then you begin to spend more time just hanging out with that clear, open spaciousness of pure source, then you begin to experience the pure freedom that comes from dropping into something that underlies all the changes. Because that that fundamental base is unchanging. It's one of the only things that does not change. It's always there, unchanging. And one last point. This is all about the first principle. Then the other thing you could do is, as you're sitting there in that beautiful forest by this little stream or the, the aspens or the trees, you could spend a little time just appreciating and feeling into this web of life that you're part of and feeling into this web of interconnectivity, this amazing display of non-human forms that you're, they gave birth to you, they gave birth to all human form. 
and which within which we dance uh, throughout our lives. We mostly look on it from the standpoint of a taker mentality as natural resources. We take from it and occasionally we give back, but mostly we just take, 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 and we don't give very much back. We are not responsible partners in that interconnectivity. But just for a moment, don't you can drop all that and just enjoy the experience of being part of this amazing, vast, interconnected web of life that, that weaves itself around the entire planet. And just rest in that for a bit and then feel it also rising from source. Pull it back into that. Those are two practices that you could take from the first principle of the 12 principles of natural liberation that you could take out tomorrow and take with you out into the forest and begin your cultivation process. Simple. Simple, not easy. <laughs> uh, it's very, very straightforward. Thank you for simplifying that, John. Uh, can you comment on two points here? A lot of the times people say, of course, everything changes. I can see that. And uh, I think that's, at least in my case, it's been in the past, a more intellectual sort of understanding. Like, of course, I can see people age. Of course, I can see that the time is passing by. But it does not lead to this whole body, somatic, deep, deep understanding. I still cling to things. I still hope that certain things won't change uh, and how is this nature playing a role in understanding that at a cellular level almost no i i love that term somatic bodily so if we're if we're uh, experiencing these these continuous flow of changes through our our nine we what we, we've we've identified nine common fields of experience which most human cultures uh, utilize to have that experience of change and of everything really. And we call them the field of sight, of sound, of taste, of touch, of smell, of the energy body, of movement and balance, of the flow of emotions, and of the movement of thoughts. Those nine experiential fields are make up the you might say the the common ground matrix through which we experience most of life and uh, somatically and 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 uh, otherwise <clears throat> now if you really refine those fields you begin to experience and sense in a much more um, you become a good tracker of your life. A good tracker learns to see and experience and smell and touch the very, very small things that normally go unnoticed because you're moving too fast. If you're moving too fast, it's very difficult to experience things in a refined way. When you've gone out into the woods to sit in silence and space in, in a peaceful, solitary way, finally life can slow down. And one of the things you'll notice is you begin to become aware of many, many little details of life that normally you were not aware of. You notice many little insects walking on the forest floor. Maybe there's some ants over here uh, taking some honey from, from, uh, from an aphid on the stalk of a flower. And before you just walked by, you didn't see a thing. 
but as you're in stillness and your perceptions are open and free, you begin to notice these more and more refined little details of life. And the dance of life becomes ever more joyful as a beautiful display. And uh, the beauty of, of all these things comes out of dropping into stillness, silence, and space. Stillness of the body, silence of the, of the uh, especially the busy mind aspect and the emotions. And then that dropping into the natural openness and clarity of our essence and just being with it. And then all these somatic displays become a great joy. Or, or mostly they become a great, great joy unless you're in the middle of a swamp with a bunch of leeches and mosquitoes or something. But, <laughs> but at least you're having an experience. <laughs> That's true. And you're aware of it. You're not hiding in your thoughts. And right. you mentioned how these sort of go into your somatic being and you mentioned this element of the source expressing and the source connecting can you comment on that for someone who has sure. not heard this term before uh source is a word that just as i had to brand a term back in the 60s for a whole system way of human culture perceiving its itself in the context of nature and the, and the whole world of life and we use the word environment to describe a whole system comprehension instead of the natural resource approach, which is just a taker mentality, which is automatically bringing you out of balance. In the same way, uh, the word source is a common ground word for the underlying uh, sacredness that underlies all life. It's a word that uh, most of the great religions and cultural traditions have words for, it might be in the Christian tradition, the, the Godhead or the essence of uh, great spirit, uh, the essence of God and goddess together. In the Native American tradition, it might be uh, a term that would relate to great spirit, meaning both the spirit that unfolds everything, the arising of all form, and the spirit that flows through all form, tying it together as it manifests. It's a beautiful term, actually, it's a great spirit. Yeah, I think the indigenous peoples were very wise in coming into harmony with that word. Now, there are many other words. Allah uh, is, is a common word within the, uh, the Muslim tradition. And in the Hindu tradition, of course, there's many faces of, of God and goddess because they're this ultimate source nature displays in both male and female images. These images of, of God and goddess, if you go deeper into the image, always those images are seen as temporary displays of an underlying non-dual truth, which is a base reality of pure consciousness that is at the source of uh, all these gods and goddesses. So they become doorways that are properly looked into provide doorways back into that fundamental pure consciousness state. In the Tibetan tradition, of course, they in Dzogchen especially, they point directly to pure awareness, to primordial, primordial awareness as the fundamental uh, base aspect of our being. So a word that ties all these different interpretation, interpretations of, you might say, the foundation of one's true nature, the word source is, is a pretty good word for it because it points back into the source underlying all these these various displays of the sacred 
the could you comment uh, on the on the nature of how source arises? Because I think we, like you mentioned, we have been trained to be takers and we are trained to be doers. And we are always trying to do something and we are trying to get something from the outside. But sure. there is an element of spontaneousness in which source manifests, right? And when you talk about these bigger questions of what is my purpose or what should I be doing? Uh, we sort of, at least my experience has been that the the answer is not out there. I don't work it out. It emerges naturally. And so it doesn't seem like I need to go and do something in nature, which was my initial question, because we're always thinking we need to go and do something. But as surprising and paradoxical as it is, we just need to go there and just sit or just stand and everything happens by itself, which is so hard to understand with our current cultural mindset. Can yeah. you comment on the spontaneity and the non-doing element, the, the Wu Wei in the Taoist way? Yeah. One of my beloved teachers was a guy named Alan Watts, <clears throat> who I think had an English background, but came to the States and his life here. He was a master distiller of both Taoist, uh, Hindu, and, uh, and Buddhist traditions. He uh, summed up meditation beautifully along the lines of what you've just been sharing. He said, the essence of meditation is sitting quietly, doing nothing. Sitting quietly, doing nothing. So, Again, coming into a state of, of just sitting with the truth of what's arising, letting everything else kind of fall into its natural state. And then, uh, especially with uh, the, those nine experiential fields, allowing them to do their dance, enjoying them to some degree, but not getting all cut up in them. And actually following the display of those those nine fields back into where they arise at a much deeper level within yourself. So you actually can follow those, those nine fields back into what we call the true nature, which is another word for source. You can begin to drop back into where they actually arise from. And when, the, when a particular uh, aspect of whatever field, sense fields you're working with has, has done its thing and has begun to change, where does it, disappear to? Where, where does it die? Where does it vanish? Where the new arise? And also, what is the field of pure awareness within which these beautiful form fields that display through the nine experiential fields, where do they actually, what is the field of being that allows them to manifest, to actually do their dance? So you can explore it from where do they come from, where do they arise from, which emphasizes the source effect, source aspect. You can emphasize the field within which they display, which emphasizes this, this base field of pure beingness that holds the entire dance of form in this world. Or you can emphasize, okay, where do they disappear to? And then you're taken back into, when they vanish, you're left right back in that state of absolutely pure, open, clear, awareness without any particular shape or form. It's, 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 it's a process. Yeah. And, and something to be cultivated. 
and I think what would be amazing is if we can do a an exercise and maybe you can lead people who are listening to this through that process of where does the sound go or where is the thought going away where often we sort of say something and we hear it and then we don't pay attention to the fact that it's gone yeah it uh, if you take if you take uh sound is a good example I, I wish we could be out in the woods right now because i'd rather than use my voice i much prefer to be out in the forest with the sounds of the birds and the wind and the rustle of the, the leaves in in the trees maybe some of you are out with your cell phone or your computer out in the woods even though i advised against that but <laughs> <laughs> but anyway take these pointers from my voice and uh, and even if you're in a city or in a in a coffee shop having a nice cafe, you can just sit very quietly for a moment, listen to the sound of my voice, listen to the sounds in the cafe or in whatever environment you're in naturally. Uh, enjoy how those sounds are displaying for a few moments, including my voice, and then go a little bit deeper. Uh, follow back that sound back into where it's arising from. Where is the sound of John's voice coming from? In in terms of my my inner world, my inner experience. I mean, it's true. He's saying something. So it's in that sense, it's coming from him, and then it's going through this amazing uh, series of electrons through space, and then arising in my my device, and then comes into my ears. It goes into the nervous system and then comes back into some aspect of my being, which is absolutely open awareness. See if you could follow it back into that place where there's just a simple state of total open receptivity. And not just receptivity, it's actually, as the voice is experienced, you are, there's a kind of natural creativity that's coming up where the voice is honored and acknowledged as it arises in your field of experience. And just rest in that underlying open awareness that holds it and from which it arises. And now pay attention to any sounds that you can notice within your field of wherever you are. Maybe the sound of a bird in the distance or some neighbors talking if you're in the coffee shop or the leaves rustling if you're lucky enough to be in a forest. But just notice where those sounds are rising from, which direction they appear to be rising from, and then follow them back. Instead of going out and losing yourself by going out to where you think they are externally, follow them back into yourself, into where they are established in the root of your awareness, of your, of your being and just spend a little time with that clear awareness that holds uh, the sound of the leaves or the folks talking or my voice or whatever it might be. Just spend, spend a few moments resting in the state of clear, silent, open beingness, kind of pure awareness, free of any particular form. We'll just sit with that for 
few moments or omits. You can have the eyes open or shut. It might be a little easier for your cultivating sound to have them shut initially. And just notice that if any other things come up that distract you from that clarity and openness, like a thought or maybe an emotion or maybe another sense like touch, follow them back too to where they arose from internally. What did they arise from? What is the field within which they manifest? back into where they go, what, what, what is there when they vanish, when they're finished. Now maybe you can take the same kind of perception and notice where your, your body is. Feel your feet on the, on the ground if you're sitting in a chair or standing. Feel that contact with the floor or with the earth if you're outside. Enjoy that contact, that groundingness with the feet in contact with the ground. Notice your body and feel the clothes that are hanging on your body. Feel the weight of those clothes. Now notice your skin and its contact with the air. Now maybe a very gentle little pulse of, of the wind or a current of air moves across the face or the hair or the hands or somewhere over the body. If it's exposed. Now for a moment, follow the contact of the feet on the ground back into that same place of pure, open, clear awareness without any particular uh, content. It's sort of just completely free, vast, infinite, open, spacious awareness. Notice how that is holding that same experience of the feet touching the ground and be with that. Now do the same thing with the feeling of the clothes on your body, touching your body. Now do the same with any touch of a breeze or a bit of movement of the air across your skin, anywhere on the skin. Just fall back into that pure, open, clear awareness. The clear field of pure, spacious, virtually infinite awareness that holds us all. And anything else that might arise, again, a thought or an emotion or any other sense, cultivate with it in the same way we've just done with touch and sound. Just fall back into its source field, pure consciousness, pure awareness. And just rest there. Instead of spending all your time with the forms, just rest in the source. We'll just do this for a minute or so to conclude.
and then very gently <clears throat> you can feel your your grounding through the feet helping you re rebalance yourself within the body <clears throat> you can gently open the eyes And then just uh, bring yourself back into a awareness of the entire display of all of the nine experiential fields of sight and sound, taste and smell and touch, the energy of the body, any movements of the limbs. And then of course, the beautiful display of emotions and thoughts. And as we move on from brief uh, meditation, just carry with you that sense that all the movements of the day that continue arising from the same primordial source. Very simple. Uh, the silence is, uh, is so beautiful that uh, I don't feel like speaking. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay too thank you for sharing that and and guiding us through that and i think that gives us a sense for what you mean when you say source awareness and following these different sense fields and uh i think i think uh during this uh, past thing we have been going on for a, for a while in this in this dialogue, you have spoken of receptivity as well, and I think perhaps as we continue these dialogues in the next conversation, it will be really interesting to understand how we can stay receptive, relaxed, present with this quality of source awareness because it is so simple and so profound that sometimes it's astounding to me wow <laughs> it seems like it seems like universe is <laughs> is taking me back into source with that um, it's it's surprising how simple this is and how it shifts the quality of attention, all the chatter that's happening at the surface of my mind and all the emotional states at the surface seem to just drop away as I move into the source awareness where there's a quality of deep stillness and almost like a connection with the silence in the surroundings. And it's really beautiful. Yeah. It's really, really beautiful. And I, I, I suppose when you say spontaneous shift from the source, all that listeners need to do is just stay connected with this primordial awareness and then everything yeah. happens. Let's spend a little time each day in the way we just did. Ideally, it started out with at least some of the time in that special spot in nature but it can be brought right into the heart of the city too. Indeed. Well, is there any final words, John? I think after this experience of stillness, uh, 
I just prefer silence. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's great to hang out with you again. And uh, I look forward to our next time. Thank you for being such a great uh, sharer in the process. Oh, thank you so much for your time and, and for sharing these, yeah. uh, these great teachings. And uh, look forward to hearing about receptivity and presence and all the, all the 12 great principles that we have. Super. Thanks a lot. Okay, be well.